Well, good morning, everybody. It is a pleasure, a joy, a privilege, and an honor to be with you all this morning once again. I always look forward to my times uh, to come down here and to address you all. Now, if you were in Sunday school this morning, then you already kind of know where we're going to be going. But if not, I would ask you that if you have your copy of God's Word with you, that you would turn with me to the 8th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 8, going to be looking at verses 31 through 39, uh, and I would ask that if you're able to please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Romans chapter 8, actually going to start the reading in verse 28, just so we can hear the Apostle's words in context. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father God, it is with humility that we come to you this morning and we ask for your blessing upon our time. Father God, as we set our minds upon the things of your word, we would just ask that anything uh, worldly that would distract us would be removed from our minds, that we may not be clouded, we may not be uh, disturbed from the purpose of our gathering this morning. Father, we ask that you would graciously aid uh, by means of the power of your Holy Spirit, not only to assist the preacher, but to assist his hearers that the truths of your word might be impressed upon their hearts as it is enunciated to their ears. Father God, it is with all dependence that we ask these things. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We serve a big God. And I mean an indescribably big God. He is from everlasting. His glory and His majesty reign supreme over all things in creation. We serve a God who is the Alpha and the Omega. 
who has declared the end from the beginning, against whom not a thing will prevail. And if you don't believe me, just simply read your Bible, and over and over again, God will continue to reveal to you His glory. This is the God whom we as Christians believe in and serve. And at the very same time, the Christian life is often a hard life. It is a life that is filled with suffering, a life that is filled with tragedy. It has been said that there are three kinds of problems which a Christian will face in his or her life. Problems from outside the world which we live in, the outside world which we live in. Problems of a spiritual origin. The trials and the temptations that our adversary, the devil, will put us through. As well as those problems which originate from inside of us. These are the temptations that arise from our flesh, our sin nature, which we still drag around with us even after our conversion. One of the issues that pastors want to deal with is the question of assurance of salvation. That is, how, how, how can I truly know that I am saved? How, how can I truly know that I am in a right, harmonious, peaceful relationship with God? And while it is very important that we listen to those passages of Scripture which warn us to examine ourselves, to look at our lives, I, I, I want to demonstrate to you from the Bible that the ultimate grounds for having any assurance of our salvation is found when we recognize that it is God's grace alone which would be, we should be relying on. Upon. And so in the 8th chapter to the Romans, in verse 31, we read the Apostle writing, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul's question at the beginning of verse 31 is in relation to some of the things he has just said in the previous verses. Now, up to this point in the book of Romans, Paul has been... If you just simply start at chapter 1 and, and you read your way through, Paul has been breaking down in depth, explaining the message of the gospel to his audience. In Romans chapter 1 through 3, we get this universal condemnation of the sinfulness of mankind. In chapter 3 and 4, he moves to uh, justification by faith. In Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7, he explains that some more. He applies it in various different ways. And then in chapter 8, in verses 29 through 30, Paul gives us what has been called the golden chain of redemption, which in reality would deserve its own uh, message or its own series of messages. And, and of course, we cover some of that in, in Sunday school. But if, if I could just summarize what that text is saying, the point is that in regards to human, human salvation, God is the one doing all the work. God is the one who does all the work. Uh, Paul will repeatedly say, he did this, he did that, he foreknew, he predestined, he conformed, he called, he justified, he glorified. These are all actions of God. And, and, and as one, and as you might See, if you were to look at the original language, they're all in the aorist. They're all in, in the past tense. They're all things that have been declared. They are things that have been accomplished. 
We, we do not need to worry about that because God has never had a plan fall through. God has never sat, set out to do something that he's not accomplished. He set out to redeem a particular people in Christ Jesus to conform them to Christ's image. And that is exactly what he's going to do. It's what he's going to continue to do. And we need not worry ourselves or be anxious that he will fail. And so God is the one who does all these things. And and oftentimes, if you read, especially in the book of Romans, Paul, he will make his arguments, and some would perhaps consider them to be somewhat sarcastic. Uh, but essentially, one of the things that Paul will do is he will ask these rhetorical questions. And the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, we can recognize at least five of these unanswerable questions. And so... That's just going to reveal itself to us as we go through these things. And the first question that Paul asks, and remember the context is, God alone and God entirely accomplishes salvation. He is the one who predestined. He is the one who called. He is the one who justified. And then Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What is the response that Christians should have when they read about what it is that God has done for them. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, we all, as we reflect on our lives, as we think about our past, or as we are living out our Christian lives in the here and the now, we can think about times when there was seemingly a lot against us. I mean, we live in a fallen world, a world that is being redeemed through Jesus Christ, but nevertheless, a world that still contains much sin, much pain, much hardship, and, and people are hurting every single day. People get sick, loved ones die, Satan, our enemy, prowls around seeking to destroy us, and furthermore, we continuously have to battle our own flesh and our own sin each and every single day. And so you can just imagine someone after a long and, and, and tiring day, a long and tiring day at, at work, the stress of their personal, the stress of their family life boiling up, the stress of all in their lives crushing them, they somehow they find the, the strength to pick up their Bible, and they read, and they, and they get to Romans 8.31, and the Apostle Paul says, Who can be against us? Who can be against us? And, and they might, you might think to yourself, I, I don't even have enough time to answer that question. Who can be against me? Everything's against me. A Christian, read the first part. Paul states the question in this manner. He says, if. And that's, that's an important word there. If. If God is for us, who can be against us? Realize that when the sovereign creator and sustainer and Lord of the universe is working all things together for good for those who love him, that means that if you love him, meaning if you are in Christ, nothing, not one thing can be victorious over you. Because God is for you. He is supportive of you. Do you realize that? Have, have you internalized that truth? 
that God is actively working out in His providence. He is fighting for you. He is working alongside you. And if you don't believe me, well, we got to just look at the previous verses. Look back to the golden chain. He, meaning God, accomplishes and achieves and perfects the highest blessings for you that could ever be imagined. And if you recognize that, and if you realize that, it's like then suddenly all the other things, all the stress of life, it just goes away. It all starts to fade away. And in verse 32, he, he explains and he applies, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, this next question is perhaps the most interesting one in the passage. It's a very unique, it's a very compelling argument being made. Paul, he refers obviously to God and he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I'll just kind of put that in my own words. Since, since God did not spare his own son, but rather instead he gave him up to torture, he gave him up to death, on a cross, if God was willing and did give the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, over to the hands of wicked men, wicked men who flogged Him, wicked men who nailed Him to a cross and stood Him up until He died, if that was what God did for the sake of our redemption, why would He not actually see our redemption through? In a kind of a a minuscule illustration compared to the gravity of what we're talking about, but to hopefully just make this more understandable for you. you. You know, imagine you were going to set out on some project. You were going to do some thing. If you were going to, you know, you have this old car in your barn. It hasn't been running for decades, and it needs a new engine. And then suddenly, at one point, you go out, you pull a couple thousand dollars out of the bank account, you buy this new engine, you put it in, and, and at that point, it's like, well, you've already sacrificed so much. Obviously, you're going to be more inclined to see that project through. And now, we can understand that and we can relate to that. God who is perfect, who makes the perfect, who makes the ultimate sacrifice, which is that of His own Son, if that's the sacrifice that He makes to accomplish his plan, His purpose, and His will for our lives, namely our redemption, our salvation, our sanctification, if that, that's the sacrifice God makes to accomplish our redemption, how could we ever think for a moment that He would not see our redemption through? That's exactly the kind of logic that Paul is using here. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So God, He gives up His Son in order to, quote, give us all things. And we need to understand exactly what Paul means when he says all things. I think we can easily understand that Paul is not saying God will grant us every single desire that we could ever have, like some sort of genie in a bottle, because frankly, some of our desires even after we are Christians, are corrupt and, and they are wicked. Uh, because we are still dragging around our, our sin-stained flesh. And even if they are not sinful, sometimes the things that we desire are just useless. 
And, and, and the Christian life is also not primarily concerned with your pleasure. The Apostle Paul himself writes in 2 Corinthians about the fact that a thorn was given him in the flesh. Paul describes it as a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. Now three times, three times pleaded the Apostle Paul with the Lord to have him remove this thorn. And the Lord refused. Why? Well, because the Lord deemed it necessary for Paul to suffer some level of weakness in his earthly life. Now, it was not, you know, necessarily a sinful thing for Paul to desire that this thorn in the flesh be removed, but nevertheless, that particular desire was not granted to him. Therefore, to interpret what Paul means when he says that the Lord will graciously give us all things, we must understand it in the light of the spiritual and of the eternal blessings which he has been describing up to this point. And again, I point you back to the golden chain back in verses 29 and 30, uh, namely our justification and our glorification. Now to be glorified, that carries with it both the reality that in this life, present tense, we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We are becoming more and more like Him in terms of our holiness, in terms of our growth and our walk with the Lord. But it also glorified, it has in view eternity. The fact that just as Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he had a perfect, glorified, physical, tangible body on the last day when the last trump shall sound, that those who are in the tombs, Jesus promises, will be, rise once again. And by the way, that resurrection is twofold. He says there's a resurrection unto death and a resurrection unto life. If God was willing to deliver his own son, to accomplish that, to accomplish those wonderful, those eternal, those heavenly things, how could we ever think that he is not going to accomplish that goal, that he is not going to see that goal through? In verse 33, Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, the third question we read concerns Anyone bring, bringing a charge against God's elect? We've already talked about, or we've already seen, rather, in, in verses 28, that those who love God are those who are called according to His purpose. Uh, uh, verses 29 and 30 talks about God's predestination. God has chosen a particular people, a people for His own possession, to use the language of First Peter. We are a, a chosen race, a holy nation, and a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. That is who's being referred to in God's elected as those whom God has predestined, called, and justified according to his will. The chosen people God has sovereignly saved. Uh, this theme of election is going to be fleshed out in chapter 9. And Paul writes about this particular group of people. Who shall bring any charge against them? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? This gets us into what some see as a sort of law court scene. Let's say that the devil wants to remove the status that you have with God. Paul says that could never be. It is God who justifies. And that, that, that's a wonderful statement right there, right? 
Because what it, what does it mean to be justified? To just be justified means to be declared righteous in God's sight. It's God's act when He sovereignly states and He declares, "You are righteous. You are righteous. You are in Christ. You are saved." Uh, Paul says that we are seated in the heavenly places. That we we don't have to worry about that status of justification ever being removed from us. Why? Who's the one who justifies? It is God. And since God is the one who justifies, and and this is the same sovereign God that was just talked about in verses 28 and and through 30, who works all things uh, out to, to accomplish His purpose, namely good for those who love Him, that's the sovereign God who never fails, the God who in... And Isaiah, uh, in chapters 40 through 48, can challenge the false gods and can say to them, which one of you can speak, open your mouth, declare it, tell us what's going to happen, who says, I am the Lord, and I have declared the end from the beginning, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I shall accomplish my purpose. That sovereign God, the God who created ex nihilo, out of nothing, spoke the universe into creation in six days. It is that sovereign, almighty, powerful God who is the one who justifies and who has justified you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ because Paul says that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. And so since this almighty, all-powerful God is the one who has declared us to be saved, declared us to be righteous, if anyone tries to challenge God's elect and, 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 and to remove their status, they are challenging God. They are challenging God's almighty power. And has God ever failed in one of those challenges? No. No, He has not, though... Mankind rebels against Him daily. God will not be mocked. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And that's why He can say to the rulers of the nations, He can say to the kings, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. No one is going to thwart His plans. No one's going to thwart His purposes. And if it is His purpose to have you be made righteous in His sight, that plan is not going to fall through. Not only is this the power of God, but He is the one whom we will stand before. Think about the many, many adversaries that you have. Think of the many, many people who, because, Jesus said, if they hated me, they shall hate you, who hate Christ's church because they hate Christ. There are many people who would seek to label us as different things, who, who would seek to mock, to, to, who would seek to ridicule, who would seek to uh, not allow us to, to speak Christian truth in the public square. Guess what? We are not going to have to stand before those people on the last day. God is the judge He is the one who justifies. And since I am on the judge's side, and the judge is the creator of the universe, I don't have to be worried. I do not have to be afraid. Is anyone going to convince God to change his mind as far as what his plan for your life is? No. Absolutely not. And verse 34, Paul says, Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
that next question. Who is to condemn? Carries with it a similar meaning to the question that was just asked in verse 33. And so instead of focusing on anyone bringing a charge against you, Paul now focuses on, on the judge himself, the one who would do the theoretical condemning. You know, you know, the reality that is communicated in this verse is that no one, not, not a single soul, has any authority over your final eternal judgment than God himself. You know, we have this kind of Looney Tunes uh, cartoon picture in our minds and in our culture that paints Satan as being the final judge someday. And, you know, Satan's the one punishing people in hell, but that's false. There's a lake of fire prepared for Satan. He's not the, the king. He's not the ruler of hell. No, he's the prisoner. He's the one who's in chains. He's the one who's enslaved. He's the one who's being tormented along with his angels night and day. No. Who is to condemn? No one. Not for your sin. Not for the times when you aren't good enough. For, not, not for any reason can anyone ever condemn you. And, and also no thing can ever condemn you. You may feel as if the world is on your shoulders with this immense pain and, and, and this responsibility and everything just dragging you down and if it's like if there is just one more thing, one more bad thing were to happen, it, was just, it would just utterly destroy me. But the reality is that no one and no thing can condemn you. No one can remove where you stand in God's sight right now. Why? Because Paul says, He who knew no sin was made to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that God treated Jesus on the cross as though he had committed my sin. And because Jesus did that, God will treat me, God will treat all those who believe in him as though they had lived the perfect life of Jesus Christ. That is why we can read a verse like, like in here in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says it is God who justifies and we can know that that is a promise that is sure and a promise that will stand. The status that I have in God's sight right now, not because of any good works that I've done, but only because of my faith that I have in God's Son, God looks at me and He says to me, You are righteous. I am seated in the heavenly place that you are holy. You are beloved. And it's not because I deserve it, but it's because of God's gift. So no one, no thing can remove that. No one can condemn you. And Paul gives an explanation at the end of verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I, I've repeatedly said how God has, God has accomplished our salvation. God has achieved our justification. But here Paul gets real specific about the inner workings of that. Jesus Christ died as a propitiation for sins. Meaning His death takes our sins away. He took upon Himself the wrath of God which we so rightly deserve that by our sin being imputed to Him we can have His righteousness counted to us. And we can be forgiven, seen before God as blameless because of the perfect sacrifice which has been made on our behalf. Forgiveness, redemption, and salvation are accomplished in their totality by the blood of Jesus Christ shed upon the cross of Calvary. Sin and death are conquered there. 
Paul also, though, he also mentions, not only did Christ die, but Christ was raised. Christ was raised. Now, did the resurrection of Christ, that did not only, you know, prove beyond all shadow of a doubt that what Jesus did on the cross was not in vain, uh, but the Bible also speaks about this unity, that the fact that we are united with Christ in His death and in His burial and His resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in our resurrection like His. And just as Christ rose from the dead, we too, when God saves us, are raised again to walk in newness of life. And then Paul tells us the present location of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he is seated at the right hand of God where he continues to make intercession for us. This communicates the the ongoing reality that Christ is continuing to apply the work of that He has done on the cross to believers. And what this means for you is that there is not going to come a time when Jesus' death on the cross no longer applies to you. As if God had, had given up on that plan. No, it is an ongoing fact of life that continues to be true day in and day out. Just as the high priest in the Old Testament after he offered up a sacrifice, would go into the Holy of Holies and make intercession, pleading with God to accept the sacrifice, pleading with God to come to people as holy. The perfect high priest, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek in the New Testament, makes intercession for us every single day. And his is eternal. So who is to condemn? Who is to condemn when the judge of the universe himself has made an appeal on our behalf? In verse 35, Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? The fifth and final question asked by the Apostle Paul in this passage is, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He makes reference to tribulation and distress. And and that means both outward and inward anguish or trouble. Persecution is direct adversity caused by an outside source. When he speaks of famine, famine would be in a situation of dire food shortage, hungering and starving violently. And nakedness, that that means more than just the physical state of being without clothes. In the ancient context, nakedness, that communicates Poverty, that you're desolate, that you have nothing. Your body is barren because you cannot afford clothes to keep you warm and concealed. Danger, we know what that is, any kind of physical harm that could be brought upon you. And finally, sword. Sword is when someone is intentionally trying to bring an end to your life. And, 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 and the first generations of the Christian church and in every generation since there have been martyrs who have given their lives for the faith. Perhaps many of the, uh, you know, some of the first persecution outside of uh, the, the nation of Israel were Roman, was the Roman Empire. Paul is writing to the Romans right now and perhaps many of the people who received this letter when Paul first wrote it ended up giving their lives 
suffering under the sword of the Roman Empire as Paul himself would do. And yet, what does Paul say? He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall sword? And, and, and you know what the answer is. The answer is no. No one. No thing shall separate you from the love of Christ that you have in Christ Jesus. That's the thing about him. You see, the, Christ, uh, the Bible describes Jesus as the, the perfect model of what a husband looks like. And it says that the church is his bride. And the Bible says that our marriages should be modeled af- after this. Well, there have been a lot of imperfect people. and There have been a lot of imperfect love that, that you have experienced. But guess what? Christ's love is perfect. And, and there may be someone whom you've loved who you've been separated from. But who shall separate you from the love that you have in Christ Jesus? Not even the sword can separate you from that. You know, when, when, when we have a marriage ceremony, we say, till death do us part. Death does not keep us away from Christ. As a matter of fact, death is how we are closer to Him than ever. To answer how this coincides with this question being asked, let's look at what verses 36 and 37 say. In verse 36, Paul says, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he's quoting from Psalm 44 there, and there's... There's a lot to that. To give you some background, the 44th Psalm is, is a psalm which is describing persecution and, and tribulation of the nation of Israel. Various times throughout Israel's history, they would turn away from God, fall into idolatry, and thus be punished for that. But, but in Psalm 44, no explicit reason is given. As a matter of fact, Psalm 44, verse 17 says, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And, and, and so even though it, might, it, would, it looked like the nation of Israel was remaining faithful, remaining loyal to God, God was still allowing them to suffer for a time. So when Paul quotes the psalm, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, he's essentially saying the fact that we are undergoing these awful, undergoing these horrible, deadly, life-threatening trials, they are no indication whatsoever. That we are separated from the love of God, from the love of Christ. Sometimes when you're going through these things, you may think, is, is God punishing me? And the answer is, if you're in Christ, you've not been separated from His love. You can rest content. And, and the trials and the tribulations that you go through, those are things that He is working for your good, the Bible promises. Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through Him who loved us. When Paul begins verse 37 with the word, no, it is in response to that rhetorical question that was just asked. That nothing, nothing will separate us from the love we have in Christ. Then he makes this absolutely incredible statement there, and he says, in all these things, now the these things refers to the seven forms of suffering he had just laid out. The tribulation, the distress, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the danger, the sword. And Paul says, in all these things, in all the worst things that you could imagine, in all the worst things that you could experience, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 
What does it mean to be more than conquerors? It means that in relation to all the various forms of suffering a Christian can endure in this life, he or she will more than triumph greatly. More than have tremendous victory over all these things. Now right away you think, I I don't have it in me. I don't have the strength to overcome tribulation. I don't have the strength. I can't win against persecution. I, I can't... I can't destroy death. Well, you're absolutely correct in your thinking. For verse 37 says we are not, not that we are more than conquerors in and of ourselves. It says that through Him who loved us. Well, who are we talking about? Remember the question asked in verse 35. It's the love of Christ. And it's through the love of Jesus Christ that we are more than conquerors. It's not our own strength. It's not our own vanity. It's Him. So in response to that question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, we find once again the questions Paul's asking in this passage are unanswerable. None of the present sufferings of your life can separate you from His love. Now I know there are people out there who are hurting. I'm quite aware myself of the various trials that life can bring. I just it, just like all of you, I know what it is to hurt. I know what it's like to cry. I know what it's like to lose a loved one, to watch people suffer, to live in a generation that is enslaved to and consumed by sin. To have myself fallen short of God's glorious standard of righteousness. But the Bible says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For in all these things... We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And now we move on to this powerful exhortation which will end the 8th chapter of Romans. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 38 begins with Paul writing, For I am sure. Meaning, other translations have put it, I am convinced. Charles Spurgeon referred to these verses as Paul's persuasion. The idea is that everything we are about to read in verses 38 and 39, are it's like the undeniable, irrefutable conclusion that the Apostle Paul has come to based upon both revelation of the truth given him by God, as well as his own personal experience. The life that he has lived as an apostle of Jesus Christ has brought him to this conclusion. And and who among us has suffered as the apostle Paul has? You read his life story in in the New Testament, and, and you know his life is filled with suffering. But yet Paul says, I am sure, I I am convinced, I have thought it through, and I know the answer, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What that we had time to break down and explain all these different things. The reality is, no matter what it is, whether it's a physical thing, whether it's a spiritual thing, anything that falls within God's creation ultimately is governed by God. 
And, and, and the Bible promises that it's the meek who inherit the earth. And so anything that comes from God's creation, it ultimately comes from the one who has justified us. It comes from the one who has loved us. Nothing that God has created can ever hurt us. Ain't that amazing? And so, if I, if I could just say one more thing about this passage, it's that the God who has set us apart, the God who has redeemed us, the God who has saved us, God is a big God. God, and absolutely nothing can triumph over His plan to redeem you. And, and Christian, I want you to take comfort in that. I, I, want, I want you to fall in love with the God of the Bible. That His glorious power and His sovereignty would be, as Spurgeon once remarked, the pillow upon which you rest your head. May you continue to read, may you continue to study your Bibles, that you might relish in His glorious love. The God who saved you, well, you will not be separated from Him. He will keep you, He will hold you tight. Jesus said that no one is going to snatch the sheep out of the Good Shepherd's hands. That's what I live my life based upon every single day, and I pray you would as well. With that being said, I want you to just join with me in a word of prayer. Father God, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glorious truth. Dear God, we, we are humbled by your power. We, we, we just ask that we would live lives that would glorify and would honor you. Dear God, please, during time of trouble, during hours of persecution, would you bring these glorious truths to our mind, knowing that in the world's sight, we may be brushed off, we may be mocked, we may be ridiculed, but that ultimately it is not their approval we seek, and it is yours, and we have your approval because you have accomplished it for us in your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.